everyone. Welcome to the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast, where mistakes are welcome, nothing is off limits, and growth is inevitable. I am Sharissa Wood. I'm Brittany Simon. And we are putting our brains together to bring you the tools you need to elevate your hygiene practice, build amazing team culture, and provide patients with the very best care. Our mission is to help empower and equip every hygienist to practice purposeful, profitable hygiene. We look to guide you on your journey towards career fulfillment by providing support, collaboration, and community to our profession. As two of the top producing hygienists in the country, we know firsthand that these things lead to sustainable and fulfilling practice and the happy side effect of high profitability. So let's get to it. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another week of the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. We are so thankful that you're with us today, and we, of course, have a really important topic picked out and planned out um, that we know is relevant in our operatories every single day, and we hope that you find um, some tidbits that you can implement and start considering in your daily practice, and today's topic is about our role in our patient's joint health. So, of course, we're talking about Uh, joint health regarding inflammation, autoimmune diseases, joint replacement, anything that affects what we are doing with our patients, um, all the correlations between perio and joint health uh, for our patients. So that's what we're covering today. So it's Teresa and I, we're going to jump right in um, and we're going to share a little bit from personal experience, share a couple of case studies at the end. Um, But a lot of this is just research and kind of the latest and greatest regarding how to uh, how perio and joint health are so related and interrelated, how they influence one another, um, what causes these things to be influenced, and how we can kind of tailor our clinical treatment to minimize inflammation and minimize autoimmune triggers for our patients. So as healthcare practitioners, we know that our aim is to treat whole people, not just our mouths. We know that what we evaluate, educate, and treat will impact positively or negatively our patients' quality of life, as well as their overall morbidity load. Today, we're reviewing what research says about the correlation between joint health and oral pathogens, how they're connected, what impacts the onset of RA, and how we can intervene clinically to reduce our patients' risk for suffering with debilitating autoimmune diseases such as RA. We're all familiar with patients coming to us for clearance for joint replacement, and this speaks volumes to the connection between oral infections and joint infections. It is our duty to encourage our patients to delay elective prosthetic joint surgery until oral infections have been stabilized. And Sharissa has a personal experience that she wants to share here. And I, I mean, honestly, I've seen a couple of patients through the years that have come with their clearance letters. Um, you know, they're either, you know, having a, a knee replacement or a hip replacement or shoulder surgery, you know, something like that. And so they're coming with their clearance letter. And this has happened to me a couple of times where you know, they bring in their letter and we get in there, and we do the evaluation and there's bleeding and inflammation and active infection. And, you know, um, I've had two patients that got really frustrated with me actually, because I said, you know, honestly, I'm not sure we have, we've got to get this under control before you go through with the surgery. Mm-hmm. And they were frustrated because, you know, they'd already scheduled their surgery and they had planned all around this. And, you know, this was just kind of in their brain, this was like the last little checkoff box before mm-hmm. the surgery not really realizing what an impact it could have. 
So it was one of those, like, I know they were really frustrated with the doctor and I on the front end, as we said, uh, nope, this is active infection. We've got to get this treated and under control before you move forward. And, you know, you know, I feel bad on that side because I know that they're frustrated and they have planned. But I also know that when I send the letter of clearance back and say, I'm not giving clearance because of this, this, and this, then I know their surgeon is going to tell them the same thing. So mm-hmm. I know, I know it's not just a one-sided thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's, nobody likes to feel like somebody is unhappy with you. Um, but at the same time, you also have to step back. And this is the bigger picture of this patient's health, Mm -hmm. because here's the reality is if patients move forward with a joint replacement and they have an active oral infection, the likelihood of those pathogens infecting that new joint are very high. And if that new joint does get infected, they're looking at either, you know, a tremendous amount of antibiotic therapy. A lot of times it's a secondary surgery. So, you know, we, we sometimes might be hesitant to say, yeah, you maybe should wait for this just because the patient is frustrated, but you're really actually helping ensure that they have a much better outcome in the long term. And it's, it's much less of an inconvenience to just delay the surgery once versus having to go through that process again, or really have a long-term problem, you know, where they're not healing. Right. And, you know, every year U.S. surgeons replace more than 1 million knees, hips, shoulders, elbows, and ankles. And of those knees and hips are the most common. And a Mayo Clinic study done back in 2014 reported some 4.7 million artificial knees and 2.5 million artificial hips among U.S. adults. And that was back in 2014. So we know that's exponentially more at this point. And I'll say, honestly, I mean, we're here wrapping up 2020. I had many patients this year coming to tell me that they're getting ready to, you know, pursue a, a, a new joint. So the, I, I know these numbers are raising, rising exponentially. Um, so, you know, I just think, I just want to stop for a second and you guys know that I get super geeky on this whole oral systemic connection thing and I can't ignore it, but this is one of those times where, and I'm just going to speak candidly that if we as hygienists are just kind of bulldozing through and not taking the time and just knowing we have that next patient, we just got to get this patient done and we're participating in bloody profies. This is where we can really set our patients up for failure, not just from an oral standpoint. Mm-hmm. And, and I say this as we kind of start to delve into the whole arthritis conversation, um, because we're going to talk about some studies here that have shown, you know, that some of these oral pathogens have been shown to initiate arthritis in joints, not just compound what's already there, which does happen, but actually initiate mm-hmm. that that's a big weight that we have. So I want us to be mindful again, that what we're doing on our operatories every day, you know, is a big deal and it has a big impact. And so as we roll into the rheumatoid arthritis side of things, or just arthritis in general, according to the CDC, um, and this was uh, from this year, 2020, about one in four U.S. adults, which is 23.7% or 58.5 million people have doctor diagnosed arthritis. It is more common in women compared to men. Women, it's about 23.5%, men, it's about 18 and 1, 18.1%. Um, it's more common among patients with fair to poor health compared with those who have excellent or very good health. 
and less common among adults who meet, who meet physical activity recommendations compared with adults who are insufficiently active or inactive. Um, and as we know, arthritis prevalence increases which, with age. It is estimated that by the year 2040, 78 million U.S. adults will have arthritis, and that was uh, published by Arthritis and Rheumatology back in 2016. And honestly, at this point, experts aren't sure which health issue is the chicken and which is the egg. Mm -hmm. Back in 2008, German research published in the Journal of Periodontology showed that people with RA had eight times the odds of developing gum disease as compared with people without RA. And study after study has brought more clarity to the connection. Research from the University of Louisville in Kentucky, published in September of 2013 in the Journal of PLOS Pathogens, found that the bacterium that causes periodontal disease, we're familiar with it, Mr. PG, increases the severity of rheumatoid arthritis, leads to an earlier onset of the disease, and causes symptoms to progress more quickly. Right, so there's a great review um, from a journal called Current Opinion of Rheumatology. This was published in 2019, and it says, uh, in the last decades, our knowledge about the pathogenesis of rheumatoid arthritis substantially changed. Several evidences demonstrated that the initial production of autoantibodies is not localized in the joint, rather in other immunological active sites. A central role seems to be played by periodontal disease, in particular because of the ability of P. gingivalis to, introduce, to induce citrullinate, oh my God, I'm having a, I'm stumbling here, to induce citrullination, citrullination, the post-translational modification leading to the production of anti-citrullinated protein and peptide antibodies, the most sensitive and specific rheumatoid arthritis biomarker. So I'm going to explain what citrullination is um, a little bit lower down, but it's it creates the marker that doctors look for when determining if a person has RA. The pathogenic role of P. gingivalis has been demonstrated in mouse models in which arthritis was either triggered or worsened in infected animals. P. gingivalis showed its detrimental role not only by inducing citrullination, but also by means of other key mechanisms, including induction of netosis, osteoclastogenesis, and T17 pro-inflammatory response leading to bone damage and systemic inflammation. In rheumatoid arthritis and in other autoimmune diseases, such as psoriatic arthritis, systemic lupus, and Sjogren's syndrome, autoantibodies often attack citrullinated proteins. So autoantibodies often attack the citrullinated proteins. The presence of anti-citrullinated protein antibody is a standard test for rheumatoid arthritis, and it is associated with more severe disease. Citrullinated proteins are also found in the cellular debris accompanying the destruction of cells in Alzheimer's disease and after smoking cigarettes. So citrullination seems to be part of the mechanism that stimulates the immune system in autoimmune disease. However, citrullinated proteins can also be found in a healthy colon mucosa. So this is citrullination explained, and it's important that we kind of understand why this matters. So citrullination or deamination is the conversion of the amino acid arginine in a protein into the amino acid citrulline. Citrullination controls the expression of genes, particularly in a developing embryo. The immune system often attacks citrullinated proteins leading to autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis. Citrulline is not one of the 20 standard amino acids encoded by DNA in the genetic code. Instead, it is the result of a post-translational modification. Citrullination is 
is distinct from the formation of the free amino acid citrulline as the part of the urea cycle or as a byproduct of the enzymes of the nitric oxide synthase family. Arginine is positively charged at a neutral pH where citrulline is uncharged. This increases, increases the hydrophobicity of the protein leading to changes in protein folding. Therefore, citrullination can change the structure and function of proteins. So basically, citrullination is the change of arginine into citrulline and auto like your body attacks citrulline basically so it creates like this autoimmune like inflammatory response so it creates like some of the markers that that doctors look for when determining if a person has ra um so p gingivalis has a lot to do with that process like the presence of p gingivalis has a lot to do with that process so i thought that that was very interesting Hey, Bulletproof Hygiene listeners, we have some big, exciting news. We are proud to announce that our 2022 summit is happening in Nashville, Tennessee, June 3rd and 4th. Come join us for a weekend of growth, learning, and collaboration. We'll be taking deep dives into team culture, leadership, hygiene systems, and patient care and education that bring fulfillment, career success, and practice profitability. This course has the potential to change the trajectory of your career and help you practice at the top of your game. If you missed us in 2021, trust us, you don't want to miss this. Visit BulletproofSummit.com to get all the details and observe your spot. We can't wait to see you there. Um, Also, from another journal, I have like a small excerpt from another journal um, talking about periobacteria a little bit more specifically. It's the Journal of Oral Microbiology microbiology, and it says there have been recent reports suggesting a significant association between RA and PD. The hypothesis that RA is an infectious disease has been postulated for over 70 years, which I did not know. It is proposed that RA patients have direct contact with microorganisms and their virulent factors, which activate an immune response in the synovial membrane with the accumulation of immunocompetent T and B cells. This reaction is mediated by neutrophils, monocytes, and lymphocytes, leading to the release of proteinases, cytokines, and prostaglandins that stimulate osteoclast activity and bone resorption. While some reports have indicated that an infectious agent is in a susceptible host could be one possible trigger factor for RA, the published studies widely, very widely with respect to study design and methods used for the diagnosis of RA and PD, which in turn make it difficult to ascertain the association between RA and PD. The clinical designs most commonly used were case control and cross-sectional studies, and the main concern was being the criteria used to define control subjects. Um, The fact that RA and PD have similar physiopathologic mechanisms, such as chronic inflammation with adjacent bone resorption, has led some authors to suggest that RA and PD are a variety of the same disease. Both are chronic inflammatory reactions in an immunogenetically susceptible host. However, PD has a well-recognized bacterial etiology, while the other, well, on the other hand, the cause of RA is unclear. It has been accepted that many different arthrogenic stimuli exist that could include exogenous infectious factors or endogenous substances such as connective tissue proteins and altered immunoglobulins resulting in an autoimmune response. Periodontal bacteria are able to activate immunological responses by different mechanisms. One such mechanism includes the ability of P. gingivalis to produce a peptidyl arginine deaminase enzyme, or PAD, which leads to citrullination of host proteins and the production of putative autoantigens. 
At the same time, antibodies against heat shock proteins of P, P nigrosins and Prevotella intermedia have been found in synovial fluid of patients with RA, possibly triggering an immune response. It has also been reported that human leukocyte antigen or HLA genes are directly associated with RA and PD. These powerful risk factors for both diseases further suggesting, suggesting a close connection. Um, there is a little bit more that I want to read, but Teresa, at this point, do you have any thoughts or you want any clarifying points about what I've already read? No, I mean, I get overwhelmed because I, I explain this to patients a lot where, you know, I explain what the oral pathogens do in our mouths Mm -hmm. is basically set up camp below the gum line, right? It's warm, moist, dark. There's not a lot of oxygen down there. So you've got Mm -hmm. those, you know, um, anaerobic bacteria. That's a perfect place for them to hang out, set up camp. They literally build community. And in that process, they secrete toxins and that initiates the immune response and that initiates inflammation. And that, you know, starts the whole process, that inflammatory cascade, um, and obviously, you know, we'll, we'll see the bleeding and now there's interaction between these pathogens and the full body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, basically what these articles are saying and what I explain to my patients is PG does the same thing in the joints that it does in your mouth. Mm-hmm. It sets up in those joints, just like it does under the gums, it builds community and it starts and initiates that inflammatory response that starts to then degrade the bone. And, you know, that's, that's the, that's kind of the layman's terms way to explain this, Um, you know, and this is why I wanted to make another point. This is why, and I had read as we were preparing for this, that one of the reasons that this is such an issue with uh, patients that are having joint replacement. So the synovial fluid is normally there as part of, obviously to lubricate the joints and, and protect the joints, but when a patient has a joint replacement, that synovial fluid level is lower. Um, they, you know, take some of that out as they replace the, the joint and it hasn't built fully back up yet. Mm-hmm. So they're more susceptible to infection in oh, those areas. So that's part of that, that I just thought was interesting that I wanted to share, but, um, and I know we're going to get into this in a minute too, but I just think in light of where we're at on a scientific ability level. And I'm going to speak to salivary testing here. I think we do a disservice to our patients if they're coming in for clearance or if they have strong family history of autoimmune disease or arthritis, or if they themselves are dealing with an autoimmune or an arthritic condition, I think we've got to be salivary testing. And, and I think that's imperative before we even get in there and really start wreaking havoc Mm -hmm. because in light of this information, um, you know, we could be exposing them to a lot more of those pathogens than what they're already experiencing. Now, if they're coming in telling you, Hey, I'm brushing and flossing and I'm seeing bleeding, then they're obviously exposing themselves to that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but I, again, I think just salivary testing first and foremost makes sense for us to really see do we have a high levels of PG? There's a lot of studies that are showing that AA plays a big role in this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you just mentioned, um, you know, the Prevotella intermedias plays a role. So I think the responsible thing to do is start with salivary testing and know what we have there. I think the other thing we've got to do, we've got to help our patients understand because there is still this mentality that pink in the sink is no big deal. 
Right. You know, they come in and say, oh yeah, I have a little bit of bleeding and <laughs> it's no big deal to them. And I've been telling my patients here lately, you know, like, look, my goal is I want to practice prevention versus reaction. If you're coming in here and you're telling me that you're seeing bleeding at home, we've got to be reactionary to that. Mm -hmm. I would rather let's get you in a place and doing the home care that's necessary and seeing me on the intervals that are necessary and doing these necessary therapies so that we don't have any bleeding. Because so what the research is showing us from all factors, whether we're talking autoimmune and RA or heart attack, stroke risk or Alzheimer's risk or pregnancy complications, like all of it, you know, the mouth is the gateway to our body. We've got to make sure that we're keeping these pathogens levels as low as possible. And so I just think that, you know, our patients need to be hearing this more and more and more from us, you know, and patients are starting to come in and they're going, oh yeah, I read an article, you know, heart health is a big deal mm -hmm. and they know about that, but they don't necessarily know about this. And so I do want to share, and I know you've got a patient to share about too, but I had a patient who came in and she was having an arthritic flare um, in her wrists and she is a golfer and that's kind of her passion. And she's like, yeah, I actually haven't played in a while because I've really been hurting. And so when I got in her mouth, I realized, Ooh, she's had a lot of inflammation too. And we did salivary testing. I said, I don't, I don't want to get in there and disrupt anything today. Let's, let's see what we're dealing with. We did actually go ahead and um, scan for periotrace. Um, and then when we got her results back, she was like teeming with all the things that we didn't want her to have in there. Mm -hmm. And we did systemic antibiotics and she came back to get her trays three weeks later. And she's like, just with taking those antibiotics, I am feeling so much better. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then obviously as we went through therapy, you know, by the end of that, she was, she had a very marked improve improvement with her joint pain. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, what a gift when we get to really, really help patients with their overall health, but I think we've got to, we've got to go in that headspace when we're treating our patients and really, you know, playing the detective game to really look and see what's going on in there or what could be happening. And I just think salivary testing is, is kind of, should be our number one front on that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So now that we understand kind of how the periopathogens can produce the enzymes, which stimulate citrullination of the arginine, which can lead to production of the autoantigens and the autoimmune response, let's talk about how we can modify the oral microbiome to minimize or eradicate these pathogens. So one is what you just mentioned, which is salivary testing. And you and I know this is an invaluable tool for determining how to proceed with treatment, especially in an immunocompromised host. Um, Oftentimes the result of that salivary testing is, you know, the recommendation will be a combination of oral antibiotics, clinical disruption of biofilm via SRP and the use of subgingival air polishers, um, as well as adding probiotics and fermented foods into our patient's diets. And I do want it to read a little excerpt about probiotics um, and fermentation for patients with RA um, and, and gut microbiome. Yeah. Um, the link between Oh, this is from an article called Probiotic Supplementation for Rheumatoid Arthritis. Uh, it was published in 2021. I'm looking, it's the Frontiers in Pharmacology Journal. The link between gut dysbiosis and RA has expanded the interest in investigating the modulation of the gut microbiome as a possible adjuvant therapy for disease prevention and treatment. The increasing evidence reporting the positive effects of probiotic bacteria in animal models of arthritis has been leveraging the desire to transfer these benefits into clinical practice. 
However, only a small number of studies addressed the role of probiotics in the management of RA in human subjects, and to the best of our knowledge, no human trial has investigated the role of probiotics in a preventative approach. Research in this field is still in need of high-quality studies with larger sample sizes and longer treatment durations to ascertain the exact benefit of this promising treatment for RA patients. Probiotics supplementation in RA seems to have no clinically significant adverse effects, but further research is needed to get a solid basis concerning the most appropriate strains for RA patients. As of now, LKC seems to be the strongest candidate and its potential effect on gut microbiome and immune system could be further explored to achieve new insights on promising therapy for RA patients. Moreover, fermented foods may be a possible alternative to probiotic supplementation as some of these foods and beverages are known to be probiotic carriers with potentially similar health benefits. As the current body of evidence investigating the impact of fermented foods on on health and disease remains insufficient, its proposed benefits on the human gut microbiome should warrant future research consideration. Additionally, um, so that says basically, you know, it's vague, we're unsure, but we think that this could potentially be promising and it warrants more research. But I think that just generally kind of what we know about gut microbiome and the fact that microbiome in your mouth is all connected and how, you know, something like SIBO or um, leaky gut can significantly impact the rest of your body. Like, And for me, like anytime I've done an elimination diet or I've changed my diet and added probiotics and that sort of thing, I will notice physical changes, you know what I mean? Not just in my gut, my digestion and, you know, it'll be like a minimized lethargy. It'll be like more energy, better sleep quality, like so many physical things change for me. So just from an anecdotal like aspect, I think this is one of the easiest things to underutilize or under, um, under consider, but I'm glad that the door is kind of opening for us to research like Okay, how can we then, if we understand how um, these pathogens are impacting or how they can stimulate an autoimmune response, like what what tools are in our toolbox to be able to kind of fight them? I think this will probably be the, one of the first avenues that are like the easiest and most um, available to our patients to use. You know, so that's what got me excited about seeing an actual research article, at least kind of considering this. Right. You know, the, ferment, the fermented foods and the probiotics. Yeah. Well, I just, anytime we can do something that in my brain is more holistically mm-hmm. charged makes the most sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and on that note, I want to, I want to plug two different companies um, and I, we're not getting any backing for this, but these are just two different companies that um, we're using that make a lot of sense to me. Um, one is on the vein of probiotics. So we, I don't know if you, if any of our listeners have uh, ever uh, looked into Probiora Health, um, but they we have uh, oral probiotics that we prescribe for our patients. And obviously this is not gut bacteria. This is oral, good, healthy oral bacteria. Mm-hmm. And what I, how I explain to this, this to my patients is I implement this a lot after doing uh, scaling and root planing. And what I explain, this is just kind of the generic way I explain this to patients is, Hey, I'm going to go in here today and I'm going to clean a lot of the bad guys out. Um, I'm not actively sterilizing anything. So I know that I'm leaving a few of the bad guys behind because this is not a sterilization technique, but what I am doing is, is disrupting and removing a ton of them. Mm-hmm. So bacteria are a lot like, people as far as how many can fit in a space. So if we had a hundred people in this room and I cleared out, you know, 75 of them, now we have more room. So either the 25 left are going to quickly start replicating and duplicating and filling it up again, 
or we can have some more of the new good bacteria come on in Mm -hmm. and take the space up. And now we're, we're actually, you know, flipping that dynamic around to where we are more overpopulated with good and healthy. Mm -hmm. So the concept is, is after I'm going in and cleaning and disrupting the bad, the bad bacteria out, I want you to reinstate the good bacteria. And it's a tablet that they put in their mouth once a day. They just, you know, suck on it, let it kind of disperse around their mouth. And those bacteria have a chance to move back in. It's a lot like what happens with probiotics for our gut, but this is specifically for the oral environment. So that's that's just one thing to think about as as an opportunity. Um, the other thing, and I just want to hop back for one second. You know, I know there are a lot of different um, alternatives out there for salivary testing. Um, I do want to encourage our listeners to look into HR five. Um, it, it just launched this year, twenty twenty. It's through Direct Diagnostics. Um, we in our practice are getting ready to change over here in the new year. I'm in the process of getting it all set up. Um, but it is a lot more cost effective for your patients and the turnaround time is two days. You'll have a result in two days. So, um, you know, if that's something you, if salivary testing is something you haven't yet gotten into, I'm going to encourage you to look, look at HR five, cause it makes a whole lot of sense to me. I love it. And we'll be investigating that this year too. We use, um, MicroLink DX right now, but I think yeah. that we're going to look at that too. And we use, and I do want to say we use oral DNA and we're yeah. going to keep oral DNA on mm-hmm. our plate. I love it. There's a lot of things that oral DNA offers that the HR5 doesn't quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are also created by the same, it's Dr. Tom Neighbors. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's, if you're just getting started, I think that's the place to start. So I want to talk about one of my patients um, who was experiencing some chronic joint pain and just kind of like what we found on her and what the recommendations were. And I want to give an example of what like salivary testing for this person looked like, just as an example, so that you can see kind of how this process goes. So um, I had a young patient, she was 26 years old, who um, came back in after two years of being away from the dentist. She was experiencing unexplained joint pain. She didn't have um, an official autoimmune diagnosis you know, very healthy, otherwise no allergies, no surgeries, wasn't on any medication. She was taking, um, oh my gosh, what's it called when you're trying to get pregnant, you take, uh, prenatals, prenatals. Prenatals. um, but so she was 26 years old, very healthy, except had this unexplainable like joint pain and also had a history of two very recent miscarriages. Um, and she hadn't been in the dentist in two years. So her chief complaint was just, I'm overdue. And clinically, she had really pink, stippled gingiva, localized rolled margins, no radiographic calculus, very mild, very localized evidence of radiographic flattening of lamina dura, but generalized, the crestal bone was still one to two millimeters from the CEJ. So she was very much like healthy attachment, no recession, like, you know, basically gingivitis scenario. Um, And her probings were three to six with generalized moderate bleeding on probing. So that was already, you know, kind of a red flag to me, you know, medical history wise, the red flags were obviously joint pain and the two miscarriages on this very young, very healthy patient. Right. And then probings with moderate BOP were actually the second like red flag, because when I'm clinically looking at her mouth, I wouldn't expect to get probings like five and six, even around her third molars necessarily. And it was a lot of, you know, gingival hypertrophy, um, and it was in the lingual surfaces of second and third molars, but still there's inflammation, there's tons of bleeding. It was very suspicious. So I recommended we do salivary testing. I scanned her for periotrays, did a gingivitis debridement on the same day, and then did periotray delivery in, in one month from then. And 
Um, the patient opted not to do oral antibiotics due to the fact that she was trying to get pregnant still, um, but just disrupting the biofilm <coughs> and putting her in perio trays has been very, very effective for her. I've seen her several times since then, and her perio or, or her gingivitis is very, very arrested at this point in time, just with the perio trays. But I wanted to talk about just the outcomes of her salivary test because it was interesting. Um, so she tested above threshold for eight of the 11 periopathogens. And of course, three of them were the ones that we just talked about that go hand in hand with arthritis, the Prevotella intermedia and the PG and Prevotella something else. Um, so the recommendations for her were scaling and root planing or just removing the plaque and, and debriding the compromised tissue. Um, and it said that a few of her periopathogens may be refractory to this treatment. This patient hasn't indicated any allergies, so the antibiotics uh, that were recommended were amoxicillin, 500 milligrams, three times a day for eight to 10 days, and metronidazole, 500 milligrams, twice a day for eight to 10 days. Um, as adjuncts to SRP, of course, they recommended subgingival doxycycline highclate and chemotherapeutics with periosurgery. But I always like to read like, okay, what antibiotics are recommended, and is this like a scaling and and plaque disruption. It's always pretty similar, but it's, it's very interesting just to see kind of what periopathogens were over threshold and how this system was recommending treating them just in a basic way, you know, and I'm glad that we got some of this under control. I don't believe this patient is pregnant yet, but I haven't seen her since last week here. So it's possible that she is, but I'm looking forward to seeing kind of like, all right, in the future, like what came of this and were we able to help her on her like fertility journey, basically, and how is her joint pain and kind of like follow back up with some of that stuff. Well, that was one of my questions was going to be, have, have you seen her enough? Has she had any comments as far as, uh, you know, lower joint pain since you guys have treated? Yeah, that's a great question because I think that after I delivered periotrase, I think I did one check and one recare and I haven't seen her since then. So I don't know if she's just like due or if she's overdue or she fell off the wagon or what, but I'd be interested to know that too. I don't think that I ever followed up with that. Yeah. But I need to, obviously I want to. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, there's another avenue here that I just want us to kind of think about, you know, reaching out to your, um, local, you know, doctors that are sending letters for clearance. Mm -hmm. And instead of just, you know, responding back and signing that clearance letter, um, maybe just, you know, kind of formulating a, doc, a a letter to that doctor saying, Hey, I know you sent Mr. Jones over to us for clearance. And, you know, we're happy obviously to, to clear him or, or to not clear him. We need to treat him, whatever. But we also want you to know we're here for all of your patients and we actually perform salivary testing will, that will tell us very specifically whether or not this patient has those pathogens on board mm-hmm. that could potentially, you know, affect your outcomes. So right. we would love to partner with you in helping making sure that these patients get, you know, the right assessment and the right treatment to make sure that we're ensuring your outcomes, not right. only, you know, because they've got a license to protect and they want to make sure that they're doing the right things and, and helping their patients see the right and best outcomes. So that that's just food for thought of something that we could be doing, you know, again, to kind of build that community. Mm-hmm. Um, with the with the doctors around us. Yeah, and hopefully the number of providers who understand the value in that for them and for the patients is growing, you know, as research evolves and as research comes out about oral systemic link, 
and just more and more and more like myriads and piles of new evidence like supporting yeah like we were all a part of it and we play a huge role in the outcomes body outcomes basically right hopefully there'll be a lot more advocates and people who are willing to to partner like we talked about with um uh laura yep. and dr and dr, dr. Pritchard. Pritchard. yep yeah. yep yeah, exactly yep. for sure do you have any final thoughts Sharisa, about this topic I mean, honestly, for me, it's just, it's, it's just more reminder of the weight that we carry Mm -hmm. and the gift that we have in, Mm -hmm. in getting to really impact patients life and their quality of life and their long-term outcomes. Um, and, and I think it gets very easy to view this as, oh my gosh, it's another thing I have to pay attention to. And, oh, it's another but what I'm hoping is that in, in the world of hygiene, in the world of dentistry, we are moving into that, like you said at the very beginning, we're treating the whole body, mm-hmm. you know, and again, the, the mouth is the gateway. It, it starts the respiratory tract. It starts the digestive tract. It has an, a huge Im- impact on circulatory system. I mean, it really is the gateway to everything. Mm-hmm. So we, we have to be just really intentional uh, investigators for every single patient that's coming through. Um, And I think if we'll do that well and and learn to communicate well and really get ourselves familiar with the research and the knowledge that's out there, I think we're going to see this build more and more and more um, to where patients are coming to us saying, hey, I want to make sure I don't have anything going on in my mouth that's going to put me at risk because I see what's happening out there. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, things to look forward to and things to influence in our laboratory on a daily basis. We are so thankful to have you guys joining us today. Um, Please remember that we've got our summit coming up in Nashville, June. Is it third and fourth, Sharisa? It is. Third and fourth in Nashville. This year, we're in in 2022 now. So (laughs) come see us this year. We would love to connect with you. Come see us live. Um, We hope that you're able to make it. And if you would like any additional information, go to bulletproofsummit.com. There's information about uh, what tracks will be covered and how to register. So we hope to see you guys there. Have a great week. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. We hope you've had as much fun as we have. Don't forget to click subscribe for a lot more where this came from. We appreciate your support and promise to keep the hygiene gems coming. Keep track of upcoming Bulletproof Hygiene events by visiting bulletproofhygiene.com or download the Mighty Networks app and search Bulletproof Hygiene to stay connected. We want to hear from you.